I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, professor of art history and her story. Oh my God, I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) And myself, Justin Bua, artist extraordinaire. I usually say Lizzie Dassent, art historian extraordinaire, but today I'm going to take the extraordinaire and just rub it all over my face (laughs) in my title. (laughs) So before we start, first of all, thank you everybody for listening. As you know, we do this for free because we love to do this. And even though we have some sponsors... Uh, we just really love to do this. So all we ask from you every once in a while, just write us a review, five stars, and just leave us a really great, great uh, review at, on iTunes or wherever you listen. You know, tell us how you feel. And you could also hit us in the DM, hit Lizzie uh, or Art Attack and hit me, Justin Bua, and, and tell us some ideas. But don't be crazy. You know, I get some ideas that are just really out of control. You should talk about how Band-Aid art has influenced... Shut the fuck up. You know Wait, what I mean? Just, wasn't that today's episode? Yes, Band-Aid art? Yes, it is. Band-Aid <laughs> art today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for the request. No, but seriously, like... We, but seriously, we do listen to your guys' requests, and we take it seriously, because this is an art show for the people, from the people... To you guys, because art is something that really needs to be spread, and and I've really never met anybody in my life that has the wealth of knowledge that Lizzie has, so I'm so honored to be able to uh, share the microphone with her because she drops so much science that I literally sit here sometimes and just go, damn, I'm learning. Like, I'm I'm doing it, and I know a lot about the artist, but at the same time, I'm really learning. So this is incredible, because I don't think there's another show like this at all. So thank you, Lizzie, and also thank you to Tommy John, the greatest underwear in the world. Literally, I'm wearing it right now. It holds the balls well. Uh, it's amazing <laughs> for, it really does. I mean, there's there's a lot of underwear out there, and you could say what you want, but Tommy John's underwear is really form-fitting and really amazing, and uh, my wife wears it all the time, too, so that's that's kind of a cool thing, so it shows you that you know, it's, it, it works for the women, for the ladies too. Well, there is a ladies line. So you, anybody with a body can cloak that body Mm. in Tommy John underwear. And especially with the holidays coming up, it's the perfect time to shop. And if you add the code art attack upon your checkout, then you get a 20% discount. So let's all wear the same underwear. Let's all wear Tommy John. (laughs) Thank you, Tommy John for supporting art. And thank you guys for supporting uh, our podcast. And today we are going to talk about something that is a personal favorite issue of mine, which is women and a female presence within the abstract expressionist movement. And the reason why I think that it's critical to highlight a couple of the essential women who are working at this time and in this vein is because the 1950s in the United States was such a stifling era for women. And the fact that there are a couple of people who exhibited alongside the Jackson Pollocks, the Willem de Koonings, is just remarkable. And the 1950s, just to give a little bit of identity politic context, uh, women were just expected to live within the domestic space of the house. And there is a famous book called The Feminine Mystique 
which was published in, I think it was 53, although I always get these dates wrong, so I don't know, but published about, oh, I think maybe in 63, but about the 50s. And Betty Friedan talks about this completely hideous time for women and the expectations of this heteronormative family. And there were a couple of notable outliers within visual arts. And so those are the women that I thought we could talk about today. And one of them is Lee Krasner, who was married to Jackson Pollock. But what people often don't know about Krasner is that her training was a lot more avant-garde than that of her husband's. So Pollock, he studied with uh, Thomas Hart Benton mm. in the social realist mural style. He also apprenticed under Siqueiros, who was another social realist muralist. And Lee Krasner, she studied with the German avant-garde painter Hans Hoffmann. So already out of the gate, she is... Her language, her visual language is a lot more progressive than that of her husband's or her soon-to-be husband. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this or not, but she also, being from Brooklyn, she also went to Cooper Union, which was an art high school on full scholarship. Uh, And I think at that point, it was a school for just women. Uh, and, and, And this is crazy. You didn't know this either, but she studied with George Bridgman, who is the professor that Norman Rockwell studied with, who taught constructive anatomy on 57th Street at the Art Students League in New York. So she had a very, yeah, she had a very formal training. Uh, So it's interesting that you're talking about the avant-garde, but way before this, you know, growing up uh, in New York City, she really was able to get a really solid, fundamental, academic education from both the Art Students League and Cooper Union. So that's interesting. That is this collision of art aesthetics. And the one that she really ran with was the Mm avant-garde influence from Germany. And she ended up exhibiting in the same group show as this guy, Jackson Pollock. And she saw so much potential in his work and in the the themes of abstract expressionism, which is all about the denial of the artist and the removal of his or her hand, that art should be much more universal. It should be a an opportunity to look inward and to sever the content from the outside natural world. And so gone are landscapes or traditional figures these painters sought to liberate canvases of narrative content. And Krasner was doing that before Pollock, or she was doing it in a more sophisticated way before he was. But after the two of them got together, she still created. And her early work, it's kind of fun, she would cut up her older canvases and also cut up older canvases of Pollock's and incorporate them into her new work. And so I think that is part of the reason why her body of work is kind of limited because she would repurpose her old art that Mm. she didn't like anymore, that didn't serve her anymore, and then repurpose and reconstitute it into her new uh, canvases. So that's kind of unusual, but especially after she really became the talking point for Pollock and she became his mouthpiece, her production slowed And so she went back into the role that she inherently was trying to eschew by virtue of being, 
you know, an autonomous artist. Yeah, it's true. I I do. There's a complicated dynamic there. And it's almost like by speaking for Pollock, by, yes, by introducing that dynamic, she's letting him paint for her. Yeah, well, he was a, I mean, he was a powerful force. I don't like Pollock, as you know. I'm not, I'm not a fan of his work. And quite honestly, I'm not really a fan of Krasner's work as well. I understand her, uh, you know, and I love the fact that Pollock studied with Benton because, you know, I'm a huge Thomas Hart Benton fan. And, you know, that uh, Krasner studied at the Cooper Union and studied with masters like George Bridgman. And even there's some abstract art that I really, that does hit me to the core of my artistic soul. But her work never really hit me. It doesn't feel emotional. It feels, this is me, you know what I mean? And, and this is what this is what, where we get into like, you know, art is real subjective, guys. I mean, it's, it's you can go, you can be, I, mean, I have friends who just hang Roscoe's in their house. And I go, oh, you like Rothko? No, I just like it with my couch. It's like a feeling. <laughs> I know, but, but you know, at the end of the day, right? Art is decorative, right? Art is, art is practical and pragmatic, uh, but art, art is a personal experience. So for me, Krasner's work feels uh, very empty emotionally to me. I know that Pollock's work feels definitely expressive, they both, I guess they both feel kind of expressive, but for me, it doesn't hit me in a way where I go like, oh, wow. It doesn't even hit me to the point of like, I could see why I would put a Rothko on the wall because it goes with my my plant and my window. <laughs> but God, I, these are daggers into my soul. Yeah, but they're daggers into my soul too because <laughs> I, I, I hate when people say like, man, I love your Piano Man painting. It goes really well with my couch. And I'm like, <laughs> thank you. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. holding back and then I say, thank you. That's really nice because you can't, stop anyone from feeling or thinking a certain way. Totally. It's unavoidable. But my question for you is that what about Pollock is more expressive to you than Krasner? It just feels more animated and you you could feel the paint being thrown. Plus, you know, I'm a sucker for movies. And like we talked about it before, that Pollock movie, man, that movie (laughs) brought me into his character. Totally. To where I could see his angst and his, his just, his complete, uh, self-destructing artistic energy that was just so kinetic and frenetic that it really it really made me feel like oh that's what an artist is always had the cigarette you know the ash about to fall because it was so long because <laughs> it was always burning without him taking a puff with his t-shirt throwing paint everywhere and he was so like emotionally distraught for me there's something romantic about him as a character so I look at I look at the way that uh, Ed, what's his name, who played him? Harris. Ed Harris played him, was so good. And I always look at Pollock now through the lens of that movie, and I go, "Wow, what a fucked up artist! Like, what a he really had to say something." And I felt like maybe he was really like that. And maybe, and by the way, Lee Krasner too. Not taking anything away from their personal journey, and look at you, you love them, you think they're fantastic, and that's great. I just look at their work. To me, it doesn't hit me. I, I don't, and it doesn't even hit me to the point where, like I said before, where I would probably put a Rothko on my wall because it goes with my couch, but I'm not going to put a Pollock. Maybe I put a Pollock in the bathroom. Oh, no, I'm kidding. So I would generous do that. of you. <laughs> Maybe I put it right <laughs> next to bathroom. where I pee, like as a target, <laughs> and then it would hit the Pollock and then go into the toilet. Oh, God. But That's what fair. you say about Pollock's process being different from Krasner's, mm-hmm. there actually is a nugget of wisdom in that. 
And Pollock was unlike any of his contemporaries in the fact that he relinquished total control when he worked. There was no moment when his painting pressed against the canvas that we end up seeing as viewers. He would always drip and let gravity take over part of that creative process. And Krasner's work, although visually very similar, she is still wedded to that exchange between artist, the traditional exchange between artist and canvas. And she painted vertically like most artists do. And Pollock painted famously horizontally. And her work is a lot more controlled. And there's this one series, I believe it's called Little Pieces, which is kind of ironic because the scale is very large. And the use of the word little always just throws me because it seems so diminishing Mm. that she is intentionally diminishing her own work. Maybe it's systemic because of what women's expectations were. Or ironic. It could be she could have used it ironically. Yeah, exactly. It could be ironic. And these compositions, they're very grid-like. And to me, it kind of looks like a hieroglyphic or Hebrew lettering. And so it feels kind of epic to me. It feels old. It feels important. And her parents were Russian Jews. They emigrated to the United States to escape the Nazis. And so that Jewish history, I think, was really resonant and rich within Krasner's life. And I think that even though we're trying to disentangle subject from creative production, it's impossible to eliminate that completely. And so I think her subconscious drive was about her cultural and spiritual faith. To all the Russian Jews out there, holla! Shout out, shout out. <laughs> That's so, your impression? After- <laughs> hey, man, my my mom's side were Russian Jews who immigrated uh, as well. So, look, I'm... It's once again, it's it's the, you know, I loved her studio. If I, if I may say something, when you look at photos of Krasner, that studio is ridiculous. Like sometimes in history, she had like a Jim Carrey studio. You know what I mean? She had a beautiful like North Light open giant fantastic studio where you could just create all day. I don't think that was a shared studio with uh, Pollock, right? No, he worked in a shed out in the back. Yeah, he worked in a shed in the Hamptons, no? Somewhere. Somewhere. In New York? Okay. I don't know. So yeah, but like she had a bad ass bona fide Jim Carrey like studio. When you look online of Jim Carrey studio, shout out to Jim Carrey, man. That dude who can't <laughs> paint that well at all. No offense, Jim, but you know you good at acting and you're funny. But dude, come on, bro. You ain't a real painter. My man. <laughs> so to circle back to the abstract yeah. expression. You know what I'm saying? Like, but but his studio <laughs> is ridiculous. Taking a little jab, but also taking a little like shout out to that studio of Krasner. Because when you have a studio like that, when you look at old photos of Picasso in his studio, you're like, of course he's a great artist. Look at that studio. Oh, beautiful. Right, which is actually a very interesting point because social reformists, they often believe that your context predicts your moral compass. And so if her studio hmm is large and light filled, Mm -hmm. then maybe that predicts the scale and the success of her work. I don't know. I think that that's something to consider. That's a good point. One element of Pollock's Mm. work that I've always criticized, which I actually found out was at the hand of Krasner, is that if Pollock is trying to eliminate subject matter and anything that is referential in his paintings, why did he title them? 
His lavender mist, for instance. I don't really know what a lavender mist is, but when I'm looking <laughs> at the work that's titled that, I'm going to try to figure it out because there's always that relationship between text and image. And if he had just titled them untitled or some kind of number, it would have been a much more sophisticated expression of what he was trying to accomplish. And I found out that Krasner was the one who titled his work because she knew, and of course she was right in this, that more clients would be interested in collecting if there was a title. Well, there you go. So in a lot of ways, you're saying that she was the brains behind his brand. Absolutely. Yeah. But I also think that she was an equally legitimate artist on her own terms. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. because of the expectations that she self-imposed, that she was his mouthpiece, she was his business partner, that because of that, she ended up limiting her own production. Now, I'm going to add yet another fire story is that I believe this is true that a lot of Krasner's early work was all lost in fires. Now, we're, we're, this is very weird, but it's true. Norman Rockwell, a lot of Rockwell's work was lost in fires. And we talked about Egon Schiele's work being burned by his father, Adolf, as well as his, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as well as, uh, you know, down the road, by the judge burned his sketches in court, Egon Schiele. And Krasner also lost a lot of her early work by fire. I cannot confirm nor deny this. I've Doesn't never that heard weird that. though? Like why? <laughs> I, I guess just a lot of work through history is really lost. Like I know Michelangelo threw out a lot of his own personal work. A lot of his sketches and drawings were just, he himself burned. So it's weird though, but a lot of art has been lost in fire. Well, Krasner definitely destroyed some of her own work and whether other paintings were destroyed in a fire, I'm not sure. But it is true that we don't have the whole spectrum of her trajectory because of various reasons. And I also wanted to talk about Helen Frankenthaler, who is another incredibly significant artist of the time. And she painted a little bit later than Pollock, certainly, because he died prematurely in 56. But Frankenthaler's working maybe in the very early 60s, and she was aligned with all of the abstract expressionists, the motifs, the elimination of subject matter, the removal of the artist's hand. And Frankenthaler is actually more of a protege of Pollock's than even Krasner because she used the concepts of dripping and pouring and staining her work and never really touched it, or she only touched it after the fact. And she's also working very, very large scale and a painting of hers that is perhaps most iconic is called Mountains and Sea. And for this painting, she always used unprimed canvas. So what that means, and Justin, you can speak more to this than I can, but from my assumption, when you prime a canvas, then all of the pigment that goes on top of it sort of rests on the surface. So it's a little bit more saturated and it doesn't bleed through the weave of the canvas, the canvas. But if you unprime it, then it does. And then it's much more organic. It kind of looks like a watercolor, but the pigment is not trapped on the surface. Is that right? Yeah. So usually if you prime a canvas, it's, it's just, a, it gives it a little bit also more, uh, whiteness you know what I mean it's it can be uh it has more just more of a, a texture to paint on top of right uh so that and she's painting and this looks like is it oils yeah so because she, it looks like watercolor 
you know, I'm not actually sure if it's oil because the abstract expressionists, they were playing with this concept of commerciality and high and low. And often the artists would use acrylics or industrial paints. So what Frankenthaler used, I'm not 100% sure, but definitely when you say it looks like a watercolor, that is a fact. And that was the intention of her process and why she used this unprimed canvas because she would take big old buckets of paint and spill it on the canvas. It would The pigments would soak, it would stain, and it ends up being this beautiful Rorschach almost where it you It looks have like the, a Rorschach. Yeah, a it Rorschach does. Test, and then yeah. from that that uh, interaction, that performance, because it really is a very performative process, then she would add charcoal and then she would see whatever, like you do in a Rorschach, and then title it accordingly. Mm -hmm. But what's so fascinating about Frankenthaler is the rhetoric surrounding her art criticism. So she was dating the most prominent art critic at the time, Clement Greenberg, and there oh, was Oh, how also convenient. Go ahead. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's true. You would think that it would it would be mm -hmm. helpful in her career and mm -hmm. actually it wasn't. But at this time you'll notice Krasner had a relationship to an abstract expressionist and so did Frankenthaler and de Kooning's wife Elaine was also an artist and so there is this this concept of coupling that I think was particularly useful during the 50s because women it would be hard enough for them to show and so I think having that that more of a male critic or artist was really helpful. But anyway, there's this guy, Morris Lewis, who saw Frankenthaler's studio, and he was captivated by her process and the fact that she didn't prime her canvases, and he did similar color explorations. And Clement Greenberg talked about his work as just being so subtle and how incredible that he's relinquishing this control and when he talked about Frankenthaler's, he basically described her as being a creative conduit. This takes away any agency of Frankenthaler's, that she is just a channel through which masculine energy is run through. And the other thing is that he talked about her work as being kind of gendered because the stain, the soak, it sort of evokes female body fluids. And then... We're afraid of female body fluids, but we heroize masculine. And so there's just a very interesting way that her work is discussed next to a male contemporary who is, for all intents and purposes, doing the same thing, but he's written about differently because he was male. Yeah. So once again, not a fan of hers either, by the way. <laughs> not not really of the abstract. I just, it doesn't, it doesn't call me it doesn't I, I don't look at the composition and say that's a cool composition you know it does look like a Rorschach test uh, which I guess is kind of a cool psychological examination but like you know I see kids drawings and painting that feel like similar to that in terms of the, the way they look but I feel like the kids paintings are more fresh and alive I don't really like her palette I don't feel like it's she's using color and in, in a way that's uh potent or interesting for me as where uh, other artists like a you know wonderful like Bonard or Villard use colors that just make excite me even though they're abstract um and 
yeah, I don't really like that whole school. It's a personal choice. It doesn't do anything for me. It's it's hollow and and it feels perhaps it does exemplify the times. You know, people were trying to be different. They were trying to reach out to get away. I understand the departure from the academia. That makes sense to me. It's like, yeah, we did. We, you're never going to get better than Booker. Oh, you're never going to get better than Sergeant. You're never going to get better. Let's do something different. Let's explore. Let's go out there. And so they were part of that. But I don't think they were doing it in ways that, to me, excite the the visual eyes and so that I could kind of surrender to it or they're not emotional to me. And there's such a lack of, uh, a lack of drawing that also it doesn't, it doesn't interest me at all. So I kind of just, and, and also to be honest, how many people have done that since when we go to galleries and museums today, most of the work is, is abstract and contemporary, and contemporary art dominates the art world right now. And artists like these are pretty much the most significant, important artists of today. And that, another thing, doesn't interest me, because perhaps what was so subversive and irreverent back then is so normalized now aesthetically. And there's something to me that that feels wrong about that. I'm waiting for the pendulum to swing, and I don't even want it to swing you know, back to the academy. I don't want it to swing back to the Jerome days. I want it to swing somewhere else. I don't know where it's going to swing. So, Yeah. And I get what you're saying. I think that to me, it doesn't matter how many painters after this moment are derivative. What matters is how these painters were so disruptive at the time that they created. And just because people are still working within this non-objective landscape, that doesn't take away from all of the innovations that the New York school forged. And for me, it is so of this moment because as we've talked about before, after the entire world was ravaged by war, how do you ever go back to a canvas? How do you create in a way that feels sensitive to what we've all experienced? And I think that artists globally were trying to reconstruct what it meant to create something. And uh, in a way that felt at this time with the abstract expressionist so American, so aggressive. That's why the scale is often very large. That's why I think it's really appropriate when people talk about Pollock's drips as being these ejaculatory motions or just it. It feels really, really masculine. And so I think that's why mm. it's important to talk about women who are working visually within that same that same vein. But to me, it's incredibly emotional. I think since there is no concrete subject matter, that allows my eye to really just turn off logic mm -hmm. and to feel and to absorb. And I don't get that a lot. And I think that it's actually incredibly potent and powerful. I think that you're just a much more emo emotionally uh, vacant person. And I'm much more of a feeling... <laughs> Uh, I'm more, the word pathos comes to mind as where I'm empathetic and you're, uh, you're, you like, I'm a shell. Of you're a, a shell. Yeah. yeah you're yeah, you're like fair. the disruption of, uh, nothingness <laughs> like John Paul Sartre. No, I'm kidding. And this once again goes to show you how subjective art can be yeah. for, you know, one person's trash, yours, uh, mine is another person's treasure, yours. Right. So like for me. <laughs> Uh, don't get me wrong. If you were to give me an original, I would, I would knock, you know, I would call you up and be like, Hey, how can we sell this at Christie's? You know what I'm saying? Like I would, but it doesn't, 
resonate to me, and I think a lot of people that listen to the show, and I'd like their opinion too, because is Krasner hitting you emotionally? Do you guys like this work? Please let us know, because you know we, we definitely hear when you guys like it, but we don't hear much when you guys don't feel the work that we're talking about. So and I'm kind fine. of interesting. And that's I don't care. Great. Yeah, true. Like, remember, Rockwell was criticized. When we did Rockwell during his time, he was criticized as being too Americana, too saccharine. You know, he was just bleeding like people just had an artistic cavity with his work, which is fine if that's what you felt. You're out of your freaking mind, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but he's not my natural aesthetic. No, you know, I know. I'm always going to be interested in the conceptual art and the non-objective art, but I think that you can always find yeah, something but not anybody, that is of value. Not anybody could do what Rock will do. Only one person can. Anybody can do what Krasner did, in my opinion. Anybody can do what Frankenthal did. Anybody could do what Jackson Pollock did. That's a problem for me. As an artist, if I can get Manny, who's a drummer and an awesome human being, I say, hey, create this Pollock. He could do it. Like he, you could, he could throw paint around to where you'd be like, oh shit, that's a Pollock. A hundred percent, it would not look the same. But then what I said to you I before, I hundred percent, Manny's looking at you like you're wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, but Manny didn't do that in 1948. I understand. So it's a context that, thing. Yes, it's a context, context thing. is everything. But nobody could do what Rockwell did. Nobody. Yeah, and it didn't matter if it was 1952 or if it was today or if it was 1704. Nobody could ever do what he did. Now, that being said, skill can also be, uh, you know, some kind, some kind of an obstacle in your creative process. But it's, a, it's, it's an artist of greatness for me. You, you come together from every, from every angle, you know. And then at that point, you know, you either you show your work to the world and people love you or hate you. And sometimes when they hate you... Later on, they love you. And sometimes when they love you, later on, they hate you. And I've been, you know, I'm into de Kooning and Diebenkorn and, and some people in the abstract world for sure. You know, I, I love some of those artists and, and others just don't resonate to me personally. It's not a personal vibration. And I feel like other people out there in the world are also farces. And that's that's true, too. And and whether whether it's not true, it's I just said that's true too, but whether it's not true, I have no idea what I'm talking about. My point is that like I just don't like it. It just doesn't resonate to me. That's my personal opinion as an artist and as a person. So I'm looking at it from an from a personal point of view. This is my taste. And then I'm looking at it as an artist point of view. And I'm trying to cleanly separate both of those perspectives. Sure. And that's legitimate. And for me, as a historian and also somebody who does not personally produce art in this way. I am not offended by certain things that bother you. And to me, I see the context as the richest element of anything, of everything. And maybe if you did create artwork, you would realize, damn, that way that those people created is really easy and it would cheapen their work to you. But I've seen enough videos trying to recreate a Klein or a Pollock or a whomever, and I've also read enough about it where I understand that it is a lot more complex than it appears to be. But ultimately, I don't care. I don't care if it takes two seconds to make a painting. It can still be deeply emotionally resonant. I agree. And also there's that, you know, that when that guy put out the Vermeer film where he recreated Vermeer and he wasn't even a painter, that was shocking. Did you see that film? I did. Holy shit. That blew my mind. That dude painted like a Vermeer and he wasn't even an artist because he was incredible 
at copying and he had such a disposition to work hard. He was a hard working, like critical thinking dude. Yeah, but he's a fabricator. He's not an artist. No, absolutely. But that was the argument. So was Vermeer. Vermeer was a fabricator. Vermeer did not paint those paintings. Vermeer used an opaque projector to recreate these things. But what did he do? He, he, he created it in a way where he, he used colors that were just gorgeous and, and sensual and stunning. So, but, you know, and that's a fine line too, right? Vermeer, it takes away a little bit that somebody can recreate a Vermeer with an opaque projector. It takes away a little bit for me as an artist that he didn't create it from scratch. But who cares? I think Dali was a fabricator too. I don't think Dali was a great artist. I think he was a great, uh, he wasn't a great draftsman. He was a great craftsman. He was a great fabricator. But he's a great artist in the bigger picture. See, I, I think it's different. And so, anyway, fast forwarding to right now, uh, it's okay to love it and it's okay not to. There is room for all types of art, which is Absolutely. so phenomenal. Absolutely. And I think what defines the best art is art that makes you have these kinds of conversations. Absolutely. And, and it's, so, yeah, that that's a really powerful thing to ask yourself, why do I like this or why do I not? And then it's so much about this self-discovery or as much about that as it is about a discovery of the context from which it was originally made. Absolutely. Okay, guys. Let us know what you think. Peace. <laughs>